Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we turn to your word. And we ask that you would give us the reverence that we ought to have. Being mindful of what your word is, as it's this living, enduring, powerful, great, sharp, scalpel-like sword. And um, make us ready to hear it in that way, Lord, so that we would receive its admonitions and that we would enjoy its grace as it sets forth Christ and his mercy to us. So send forth your spirit, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you now to turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. And our text this morning will be verses 3 to 8. So whether you're here or whether you're watching on uh, the TV screen, would you stand with me now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? One Thessalonians four three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, that God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he rejects this as not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Well, it uh, might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable that God has placed texts in Scripture that make us blush. But if they do, we need to get over it. Because blushing texts tell us things that we need to hear. And today, if uh, you're the blushing kind, our text is one that might turn your cheeks a little rosy red. Verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Whether we feel uh, that it makes us blush or uncomfortable or nervous is entirely irrelevant this morning and unimportant because this text teaches a thoroughly relevant text which is essential for our spiritual health and well-being. And one reason why Paul, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brought this text to the church is because of the world in which he lived. Uh, The Greco-Roman Empire is well known to have been one of the most permissive about its attitudes towards sex and sexual immorality. And some have speculated perhaps the apostle penned this under the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, which was the god of sex, and in whose temple all kinds of unspeakable and gross acts of immorality occurred in its worship. Or perhaps he was thinking upon uh, the gross immorality in the worship of the pagan temples in Thessalonica and all of the baggage in the past history that many in that congregation must have carried with them on account of their experience in Gentile paganism. But whether we can pin it down to any of those reasons or not, one thing that we can see here on a plain and simple and straightforward reading of the text is that the Apostle Paul throws down a moral gauntlet. He throws down a moral gauntlet with an unswerving moral imperative And that unswerving moral imperative for all believers is this. The will of God is that you abstain from sexual immorality. He spoke it to the church. He spoke it to believers. And he spoke it to everyone. He spoke it to teenagers. He spoke it to single, unmarried people, whether they be 
younger, middle-aged, or elderly. He spoke it to married couples. He spoke it to all believers. And so we need to be persuaded this morning that this is of the greatest relevance to the church. As I did some research this past week in the social scientific literature, I, I was struck by how flabby contemporary Christians report to being. And by the way, that is social scientific research. It is based upon self-report, and so it's often very unreliable on account of that. It's not as scientific as we might like it to be. But if we can go at all by the nature of what we read, and here's something that's very interesting, the more uh, scandalous or personally embarrassing something may be, the less people tend to report the truth about it, so they themselves don't look bad. But even at that, it's horrible. 75% of 18 to 22-year-old evangelical Christians report to engaging in premarital sex. 50% report to have had multiple sexual partners. And it only gets worse after 22. 41% of adults who identify as fundamentalists in America, that is the kind of people that believe the Bible, say it is not wrong, it is not immoral to have sex outside of marriage. A recent women's periodical, a Christian one, says that by the time of 40, 65% of men and 55% of women will have had an extramarital affair. Uh, the report of married women uh, having extramarital sex has gone up 40% in 30 years. And it's even old people, too. Or I should say elderly or sunset years people. A shocking number of 60s and 70-year-olds report this. And so when we read the command this morning, we're not reading something that you should say, well, I hope the young people are listening. Or the unmarried people are listening. This is as relevant as it gets. This is for all the people of God. When you think about those statistics, you realize that though Greco-Roman culture must have been corrupt, it hasn't changed. We're in trouble. And so what we need is the unwavering and simple, clear command of verse 3 to be expounded for what it is, morally binding. So instead of blushing, we need to put our seatbelt on. Buckle up and hear what God has to say this morning. And there's two things that we want to examine. A threefold exposition of God's will and a threefold warning about transgressing it. A threefold exposition of God's will. I want you to look at your text this morning in verse 3. For this is the will of God. That's a very important statement. I'm sure you've heard people say, if I could just know what the will of God is. And what is usually meant by that is I wish I could just get an audible from heaven. I don't even care if it's a faint whispering voice. I just want to know, does God want me to marry this person? Does God want me to take that job? Does God want me to go to trade school or to college? And the list goes on and on. But here you have a text that says, here I know what God wants. I don't need a loud voice or a quiet voice or any other kind of voice. I've got the voice. And the voice is plain. God's will is this. Your sanctification is abstain from, sexual, uh, uh, abstain from sexual immorality. And then it's unfolded in two more parts. Each of you is to possess his own vessel in sanctification, not in lustful passion, so he doesn't transgress and defraud. So there's three statements being made here, all of which expound the will of God in relationship to our sanctification to abstain from sexual immorality, to know how to possess ourselves in honor, and three, not to defraud our brothers in this manner. That's the will of God. That's what we want to unpack. And so we begin with the first element, if you will, of the will of God this morning in verse 3. And he says, this is your sanctification. This is your duty to the Lord. This is about moral purity. It is to renounce what is contrary to, to what God prescribes. And I want to see very here, very clearly here, people of God, the apostle says the will of God is this, first of all, abstain from sexual immorality, which means refrain from it and avoid it at all costs. 
And the word here for sexual immorality is sepuneia, which about as elastic, stretchy, and broad as you can imagine. It refers to any kind of sex you can think of, premarital sex, adultery, prostitution, incest, homosexual sex, bestial. It covers everything because scripture applies this one term to all of those different things. And so it says it as widely as you can say it, that God forbids something. And that thing which God forbids is sex outside of marriage in any way. Because our sanctification depends on it. Calvin says nothing is more opposed to holiness than the defilement of fornication because it pollutes the whole man. So it's spiritually dangerous, and that's what Paul speaks of here. The second thing he says is part of God's will is to know how to control yourself like a Christian. This is perhaps one of the most difficult aspects of the text because people take different interpretations. You see this word, know how to possess his own vessel. And I don't think that's a term that we tend to use too often. We speak of ourselves as a vessel. It can mean a thing. It could mean a person. But there's a whole group of commentators who say, well, because the rabbis use this word vessel to refer to a wife, what they're saying is what the Apostle Paul is urging, that in view of sexual immorality, that each man possess his own vessel, that is, have his own wife. Well, there's plenty of problems with it, and I reject that interpretation, but uh, among the problems with it, it would only be speaking to men, and you could just tune this out this morning if you were a lady. That's first of all. Uh, second of all, it wouldn't really prevent sexual immorality because uh, in antiquity, um, marriage didn't stop sexual immorality at all. In fact, uh, marriage was regarded to merely be, for a Greek or a Roman citizen, the way that you had legitimate children. There was no limitations on sex outside of marriage, period. And based upon the statistics I just reported to you about the problem of sexual immorality, even among Bible-believing Christians this morning, it should be evident that just being married isn't going to stop it. So I don't think that's a good interpretation. I think the better interpretation here is the Apostle Paul is speaking of each person. The body is the vessel. The body is the vessel. Each person, their body, their attitudes, their appetites, their desires, and he says, possess it. That is, take ownership of it. Acquire mastery over it. Discipline it. Control it. That's what he's saying. This is the calling. This is the will of God for every single Christian to know how to discipline and control and master their own body and their appetites. And he says of it like this. It's to be done in sanctification and in honor. In other words, it is to be done with an aim at moral purity. It is to be done with an aim at serving the Lord. It is to be done with the aim of consecrating the whole self to God. And it is to be done in honor. Honor. And this is an important word because it is a word that speaks of dignity and respect. And so what it's saying to every believer is that they're calling before God. The will of God for every man and for every woman is this, that they master their own body and control it in dignity, not like an animal. And I use that very advisedly when I say that. It is to be used with dignity. It is to be used with honor. And the reason... This is attached to the will of God here is because sexual immorality is degrading. It's a disgrace. It's corruptive. It dishonors the body. The apostle says that this is one of the greatest sin because it is the sin against the body. And so it's important that we hear that. And now in contrast to that, to spell it out, to reinforce it, to explain why he's underlining this as he is. Look at verse 5. He says, Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So now he's saying, I want you to understand very clearly what it is I'm saying when I'm laying down this moral gauntlet as I'm expounding the will of God for you in this particular manner. 
The sanctification and honor God calls you to is not like something. And he sharpens the contrast here, bringing it up in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God. Notice what Gentile practice is when it comes to this. It's lustful passion. Now these two words in Greek are perhaps the most powerful words you could use to describe the problem. And basically what it means is unrestrained behavior. Unrestrained behavior. Undisciplined behavior. In fact, we could even say it is emotive behavior. It is irrational behavior because it sub... It it places below it, it subsumes below it the will and the reason and the intellect and determination and it reduces the person to an instinctual kind of being who just does. It's animalistic. It's raw. And that kind of behavior is grounded in an ideology. Notice how he says it here in verse 5. Like the Gentiles who don't know God. Their action flows from their ideology. They would identify themselves with those who don't know God. And And I don't believe the apostle is trying to say here they have no awareness of God. I think this is the same language and the same conceptual idea that you find in Romans 1. All men know God, but Paul says those who are in rebellion suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So he's not denying there's a profound and powerful penetrating testimony of the knowledge of God that permeates human experience because it does. What he is echoing here is the idea that men, because of their sin and of their willfulness, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the result of that is they exchange the truth about God the creator for the created thing. And what happens when that happens is Paul says God gives them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. You see, the very behavior that is engaged in, the lustful passion, grows out of the heart. It grows out of an ideology. It grows out of a philosophy of reality, which is this. I reject the truth about God, and I worship, and I serve the creator. So Paul contrasts the two kind of ethics here. The one is the ethic of the call to moral discipline. And the other is that of unrestrained passion. He says if you're a believer, that's not God's will for you. Unrestrained passion is not God's will for you. And then uh, he uh, brings us to see the consequences of this disobedience here as he expounds the the third element of God's will in verse 6 that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger and all those things just as we told you before and solemnly warned and uh, the first part here is very important because Paul uses two different words to describe the will of God. He says, don't transgress and don't defraud. The first is about a standard. It is about a boundary line. It is about a clear moral principle. And to transgress it is to step over it. It's to break it. It's to pretend it's not there. It's to push the boundary line out of the way. But the other is different because it's more personal. Defraud. Defraud. It means to exploit. And, and the thing that rips your heart out about this is the defrauding action is, um, it, it goes to the extent to disarm somebody, to cultivate a trust with them, only to violate it and to hurt them and to victimize them. And so here Paul draws in the nature of this as a profoundly immoral thing. Because it's an attack on a person. It's an attack on a person. 
Who is attacked? Who is defrauded? Who is transgressed? He says, brothers. I think that you should widen this out as much as you can. I think we have warrant to, to widen this out as much as you can. Who is transgressed and defrauded in sexual immorality? Well, a spouse is. A spouse is because adultery is to violate and defraud a spouse by stealing from them what was owed, which was fidelity, commitment, and loyalty. It steals and defrauds. It breaks. It's not just a spouse. It's a future spouse. Engaging in sexual immorality and sex outside of marriage and premarital sex is to steal from the future spouse what's theirs. Again, I repeat to you the stat that's very unbecoming. 75% of 18 to 22-year-old evangelicals in America profess openly to have engaged in sexual immorality. 50% four or more partners by the age of 22. That's no restraint. And what that does is steal. It steals what should have been held in trust and commitment. It hurts extended family members. It hurts extended family members because when this happens, whether it's in an adulterous relationship or one that brings shame, it can involve children and mothers and fathers and family members and bring shame upon them. And so when the Apostle Paul says to transgress or to defraud hurts a brother, this is what he means. I think the point here, and I could elaborate and expound on the categories in multiple other ways. I think we're kind of getting the point when he's saying the reason why this is so bad and it's so dangerous is because it's not what the world says. The world around us says that sex is a victimless crime as long as it's between consenting people. And the Bible says, no, it's not. It's the transgress. It's to defraud. It's to steal. It's to hurt. There's all kinds of victims. And Paul says the will of God is not to be a victimizer, a transgressor, or to engage in morally degraded behavior. This is important for us to hear this morning, people of God, mastery over our own body. And so we think about that, first of all, for our application of this first component, these three elements of the will of God, I think it is in order at least to say this, because I think the record does need to be set straight so people don't misinterpret or misunderstand or twist the Christian conception. We are not to say because of the clear-cut moral command here that God is somehow anti-sex and prudish. He's not blushing when it comes to marital union. The Bible's clear about it. It's between one man and one woman. It is to be after and not before marriage. It is for the mutual benefit of the partners. God's clear. His word isn't cloudy. And so we ought not think of sex as somehow tawdry or inappropriate or uh, the subject of blushing material because of the very powerful prohibitions against extramarital sex. We don't have to cloud that. God said, this is good. Only in a certain place, only between covenanted people, a man and a woman. But the other thing I think we need to hold of here for our application is to know how our culture seeks to undermine our inhibitions when it comes to this. And I think that's a relevant point to consider given the contrast that Paul lays out in verse 5 when he says, I'm commanding you uh, to engage uh, in self-mastery for the purpose of sanctification and honor, not, verse 5, in lustful passion like the Gentiles. I use the phraseology of animalistic and, and raw passion because what I noted there is it flows out of an ideology, a way of thinking that worships and serves the Creator. And in antiquity, that was uh, idolatry. It was pagan religion. Something that um, is, tends not, I guess, to be too 
widely known is the gross sexual immorality which was associated with pagan religion in antiquity. It was a celebration of gross immorality. But I think it uh, might have changed a little bit in terms of its form today. And nowadays, I would say that the way that that same manifestation, that same impulse is being expressed is how the human identity is being defined. It does bear uh, value to know what that is. And basically, as we look upon our world today, it would tell us that human identity is an identity of a consumer. That's all you are. You are a consumer. And you are messaged all day long from our culture with messages about consumption. And the only real decision you have to make is what products satisfy your appetite and then your moral duty is to consume so that you can be gratified. That is the entire message. And it is grounded really in ideology. And so what are you being told about who you are today? From billboards to social media to television programming, the list goes on and on. What are you told you are? And you are told that your identity is a consumer. You have appetites that need to be satisfied and filled. And therefore, all that's left for you in terms of duty is to do it. That's exactly, in a sense, the philosophy of verse 5. It's just dressed up in different ideas and mental frameworks, I suppose. But the fact is, you could look at our culture and you will never find the message unless it's in the church. You are strictly forbidden from this unless you're married. And so what's being spoken in our ears nonstop and set before our eyes is this message about ourselves. We're really just animals responding to our appetites. You've heard of people say it's just a need. Well, people of God, we need to realize the mental garbage is probably circulating in between our ears. Paul this morning takes the razor sharp edge of the law of God and he says cut right through the messaging. Because the messaging that matters is not what's coming through our eyes and our senses and our ears from the world around us. The message that matters is this. Paul says it very plainly in verse 3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Oh, how we need that to just settle in our minds. And I suspect that the apostle would have left it there and not gone meddling. But he understood human nature. He understood sinful nature, so he didn't just spell out the command. He then transitioned to give a series of warnings in order that we would be curbed. And so I want you to turn now, having seen this threefold exposition of abstain from sexual immorality, acquire a possession over yourself, your appetites, attitudes, desires, and actions, and don't transgress and defraud your neighbor. Now he turns to warning about transgressing the will of God. And you can see the very first warning in verse 6. And it's alarming. God will judge. Look at verse 6 as we read it in context that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. I want you to, to notice what's right in the middle of verse 6 sticking out like a, a, a sore thumb because, because it is a marker of cause or reason which means it looks back to what was just said and it provides the basis or the ground for it. And what did Paul just see? 
No man, no believer, no man, no woman who names the name of Christ may transgress and defraud his brother in this matter of sexual immorality. And here is the divine hammer because the Lord is an avenger. The Lord is an avenger. And it means to do justice, to punish. Reminds us of the language of the preacher in Hebrews 13, 4, where we're told that God will judge the adulterer, but here the apostle widens it out. Not just the adulterer, all sexual sin. God will judge it. This is the message that he gives to the church. And the message is be warned. If we engage in sexual immorality against the will of God, you'd be punished. I realize that sounds alarming this morning. It sounds heavy. It makes us feel uncomfortable this morning. It may even ask the question or prompt the question in our mind, how can I be brought under God's judgment if I'm a believer? Didn't Jesus take all of that and strap it on his back when he went on the cross? And the argument here I would make is I don't believe the Apostle Paul is speaking of eternal judgment. I don't believe the Apostle Paul is basically saying if you ever slip up, you lost your eternal life. That would be contrary to the entire gospel message which he explains. But what he does mean is to say that God takes this serious and he's not going to be mocked. And if you do this, The Lord is a good heavenly father who makes sure that you feel the pinch of his anger and of his displeasure. We need to, this morning, take this into our ears and let it settle in our hearts and say, this is what God does. He punishes. He punishes those who would violate his will in this manner. And just to reinforce that, notice here how he tacks on at the end. Oh, by the way, we already told you of this. As if um, he believes this needs underlining again. We don't see the apostle repeating a lot of things in this letter. Here's one. And the fact that he does it suggests that these people are dealing with these problems as they're new to the Christian life and working out what it means to, to walk like a believer and as a Christian. He says, I've got to underline this again. Calvin's comment here is worth listening to. Such is the sluggishness that unless we are wounded to the quick, they are touched with no apprehension of God's judgment. So the point is to lay upon us a sense and awareness of God's uh, disfavor and disapproval so that we understand that there is a consequence. There is a punishment. And as you've already said, I don't believe the believer can lose their salvation. I don't believe Paul is in any way transgressing or going against the gospel message, which he so clearly proclaims that Jesus Christ is the one who has paid for all of our sins with his precious blood. I don't even mean to suggest there wouldn't be any forgiveness uh, if somebody breaks this with God. You just say punishment. The reality is there are real punishments, there are real temporal punishments that come with this. Divorce, divided families, broken homes, harm to children, public shame, deep and lasting emotional wounds and scars, callous moral insensitivities. Oh, there's a lot of temporal punishments that go with this, and they're real and they're devastating. Remind you this morning of the words of the proverb at the end of the extended discussion of and warning to the son about not engaging in sexual immorality. The proverb says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Well, no, the Bible's very clear. There are real consequences to our sins, even if we've been forgiven of them. We need to hear this warning against violating the will of God. The second thing we see here by way of warning 
Uh, is in verse 7, sexual immorality is consistent with the Christian calling. Notice what the apostle says here. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. It's obvious here the apostle is thinking about the gospel call, huh? He's thinking about that effectual call, that, that moment in which God takes the, the external calling of the gospel with his proclamation to come unto Jesus Christ and to find rest and to find joy and to find forgiveness in his wounds and to find for, uh, healing in his blood. And that message is taken home to the heart by the Holy Spirit and impressed upon it under regeneration and salvation and justification ushering into Jesus Christ, making us partaker of every single blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's precisely what he speaks of here, what he speaks of calling. He's talking about being brought into Christ. And then he does something very important. He focuses. He says, was that a purposeless call? Was God aimless in what he sought to do with calling? Did God have a broader reason and intention in view? And the answer is, of course he did. It's a purposeful call, and Paul spells that out by way of contrast. He called us not for impurity, but sanctification. That word impurity is obviously a word that Paul used regularly in his writing to refer to sexual immorality. And he makes a very obvious but very clear blunt point. God didn't call you so that you can go engage in impurity, did you? Well, anybody can think about it. What would God call a husband or a wife for the purpose of sexual immorality? It's absurd. But that's all believers. Instead, he says, what God called you for was this purpose, sanctification. The same word we've seen throughout so far. And that purpose is to renounce ourself and our own will and our own sinful desires and, and patterns of life and to live according to the will of God. That is the call. That is the purpose and the aim of the calling. It's under sanctification. We have a third warning here. And it's, um, I think it speaks of the danger. No one wants to have judgment or punishment from above. And I, I know no one wants to uh, uh, go contrary to their calling. But, but this, I really think, speaks to the danger of this sin. I want you to see this warning now in verse 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God. And then he describes God as the one who gives the Holy Spirit. I think it's really important that we just stop and look at that word so. It's a very powerful um a word to speak of inference. Here's the conclusion. That's what he's saying. Here's what you need to draw. Here's what you need to extract. I think it's very important by its placement, by the way, because Paul has spent now several verses expounding the will of God and expounding the dangers and the warnings for those who transgress it who are believers. And so he just, I want you to come with me this far now, and I want you to hear the implication of it. As he says, he who does this is not rejecting men, but rejecting God. You see, what Paul lays out before uh, the believer here is to engage in this type of activity is to say something. I don't own God. I don't own God. Now, I'm not going to argue that engaging in the sexual sin means that someone is not a believer, they can't be saved, or they've fallen from salvation. But I think the language here is very alarming because it says something has happened to the soul. 
And one thing that makes me think that is um, what Joseph said as he was propositioned by Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. He said, how can I do this thing and sin against my God? Do you see what was large in Joseph's mind? God was on his shoulder, as it were, and he was conscious of that. And there was something there in terms of his relationship with God that he cherished more than the moment. My God, I have this relationship with God. This action will harm it. I think that's exactly the sense in which we're to read this. So he rejects us. Isn't rejecting man. He who does this, they're not rejecting their spouse. They're not rejecting the the admonition of their mother and father. They're not rejecting what the pastor or the elder said. They're not rejecting the community pressure. What they're rejecting is God. Just imagine this morning, people of God, how spiritually dangerous that is. To bring yourself to the point where you can say by your actions and unrestraint that I'm not thinking about God. I've rejected him. I've set him aside. His will doesn't define me or control my life. I'm not under his fear. I don't care about his judgments. I'm not alarmed at damaging my relationship. I don't know. I think that's probably the worst because that speaks of a soul that is in grave spiritual condition. And then he doubles down on all of this, kind of, I think, drawing out just how, how very wrong and dangerous it all is as he says, it's God who's giving you his Holy Spirit. He's speaking of the grace nature of what God has done. He's given you something. He's given you everything. He's given you the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the way that Holy Spirit is spoken of here, it is the accent, the the ethical purity of that gift that you've been given. And the greatness of that energizing force spiritually. And it's to say, I repudiate it. I repudiate it. I count it. Is garbage. If people ever thought this before they did <laughs> this sin, I, I think that they would stop dead in their tracks. That's what the apostle is trying to say here to us as he reinforces this. He, he, he speaks of this moral command of God in such unwavering, categorical, decisive, and powerful terms so that he implants seeds right into the mind and the soul of the believer to say you must really take this seriously because it's full of gravity and spiritual significance. Calvin says here the Paul wrote with such a sharp and stinging exhortation because he says some are so unrestrained and fearless before God that they must be beaten with severe reproofs as with the stroke of a hammer. Boy, the thing I would change is some. We all are prone to hardness of heart, unresponsiveness of hearing, callousness to God's commands. When we hear something this powerfully stated with a threefold vengeance, it ought to really awaken us, clarify for us this morning our moral sensitivities and aims and appetites so that we understand how significant this is to God. You won't hear that in the world around you. You won't hear that from the culture and you won't hear that from your sinful heart. What do we do this morning by way of application? I would suggest one thing. Know the will of God and do it. 
know the will of God and do it. We know what the will of God is because the apostle puts it on a platter. He posts it on a plaque, if you will. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality. Master yourself living in sanctification and honor. Don't defraud and transgress your brother. This is clear. We couldn't claim ignorance of this, but we must be persuaded of it. And I think it's so important that we just underline it because in the back of my mind is the astonishing statistic of 41% of fundamentalist Bible-believing people who say it's not wrong at all. shows us how easy we deceive ourselves and how hard our hearts are. We know what the will of God is. He didn't speak with a muzzle. We must make it our determination to do God's will. Otherwise, we know the consequence. And bound up with knowing it and doing it is uh, we need to remind ourselves yet again of what the text says about how to do the will of God. And I think there's three main elements here. Be proactive. Be proactive. The apostle says, possess. This is an imperative. Possess your own body and sanctification honor. It is a call to action, to be on guard, to mindfulness, to hold yourself to accountability, to aspire to live in a particular way. Be instructed is the second thing. The Apostle Paul says, you do this and you don't do like the Gentiles who just are inundated with a rush of passion and they go do something. It's disgusting. But it's a hallmark of a sinful age that says your identity is your appetites. It's disgusting. Your identity is your appetites to reduce you to a purely stimulus response mechanism and strip you of all determination and motive and commitment. But that's what you're being told because that's the nature of unbelief. We need to be instructed this morning. We need to preach to ourselves duty. Our identity is in Christ. And the will of God is ours to live out. And then to do this, we would be warned. The Lord is the avenger. The Lord is the avenger. It's sad to say people that most people ignore this or don't know it's in the Bible or pretend it's not there or wish it away or hope it won't happen to them. And they don't come to realize the impact and the force of this statement until they're in the grip of God's punishment. When their life is unraveling, reduced to ruin because of their own self-destruction. I just say this as plainly as I can to you all this morning. Don't ruin your life. Don't ruin your marriage. Don't ruin your future. Don't ruin your reputation. Don't bring shame upon Christ for a moment. So you can just have something for a moment and then it's over. Finally, knowing and doing is embracing. I, I hope this, um, I know it's been a difficult message this morning. I, I didn't pretend for it to be different. If I was less than solemn and warning, I would be a failure at what I'm supposed to be saying to you this morning. So if you're uncomfortable, it's okay with me. But this is what we really lay hold of here is, is we bring some solace to our soul this morning and deep encouragement and, and really willful invigoration to do this is, is coming back to hear those marvelous words of verse 7. And just hear them as they're meant to be heard. God has called you. God has called you. 
That is some of the sweetest uh, sounding language in the Bible, isn't it? God has called you. God set his affections upon you. God loved you. God sent his son to die for you. God sent his spirit into your heart to bring you conviction of sin, to regenerate you. God put his spirit within you. God justified you. God washed you from your sins. God gave you gospel rest. He gave you the promise and the hope of eternal life. He's called you. There's nothing better than those wonderful gospel words of Jesus Christ. All you who are weary and worn down and heavily burdened, come unto me and I'm going to give you rest. It's the gospel. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing sweeter. That's the strength for this. We've been called. And then we remind ourselves in view of that. We've been called to a great end. The great purpose is to glorify God with our body. God would have us ground ourselves in that and speak that into our ears as every moment, if we stand before that crossroad, this is the most powerful thing for us. He's called you. He loves you. And so in view of that, he makes his will plain for all of us, for our good and for his glory. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Avoid. Refrain from. Flee. Sexual immorality. Father, we thank you this morning for texts that make us blush, that make us uh, uncomfortable. The subject matter is not easy, it's full of challenges. Um, it speaks to us and the reality of life and about matters that are very relevant as we are surrounded uh, by a culture that's awash in gross corruption has all of its siren songs to call us into it too. And so we thank you for the clarity of your word, the authority of your word, the admonition of your word, the, uh, the threats of your word even. They're good for us so that we would be, oh, that we would be, um, we would be made humble and sober and that we would... Um, uh, cherish our, our relationship with Christ and and with you, our Heavenly Father, so much that we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't dare want to do anything that damages that. And so that's the right attitude and disposition. And so, Lord, as we have that, would you ground us very firmly, planting our feet in Christ and gospel mercies, and then uh, with a with a strong sense of will and determination to take up our office and calling as disciples, which is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you and do your will. So strengthen us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.